thank you for joining me. My name is Stefan Van Orden, and this is Nature Revisited. It was during the filming of Negotiating with Nature, a film I made some six years ago, that I first learned of Doug Tolmy and his book, Bringing Nature Home. After reading this incredible book, I knew I wanted Doug to be a part of the film. So we arranged to meet in West Hartford, Connecticut, where we sat down to do an interview for negotiating with nature. Since then, bringing nature home has spurred a whole movement based on the way we view our yards and our gardens, that we must stop excluding nature from our lives, our homes, our landscapes, and start bringing nature home. Now that I have a podcast, I want to share with you that interview from years ago that is still as motivating today as it was the day we talked. Here then is my interview with Doug Tolmy for Negotiating with Nature. did it all start for you, this curiosity and fascination with nature, with bugs, with insects, with all the things that most of us overlook? Uh, yeah, there, there are a number of things that influenced me, my relationship with nature very early on. The, some of the ones I remember the best have to do with moving into a new development and uh, a place called Oak Park. It was called Oak Park because oaks are what they had knocked down in order to build the development. Well, our house was the first house to be built on a circle, and then they built them from right to left. So the lot to the left of us was undeveloped for a full year after we moved in, and there was a little pond on that lot. So that probably was my first uh, intense exposure to nature. I'd go to that pond almost every day and just see what was happening. Uh, and that was the first year I was there, so I didn't, I didn't know what the next day would bring. And in the spring, all of a sudden, there were toads there. They were singing, and, and uh, I was fascinated. Then, then some toads started hugging the other ones. I thought that was really nice. Then, of course, the eggs came, the polywags hatched, and I watched, I watched Metamorphosis. I learned a lot by watching that, that pond. But I also uh, learned what happens to ponds like that. The bulldozer came and buried the pond and all the baby toads and would have buried me if I hadn't run out of the way. I don't think the guy ever saw me. But that left a mark on me. I want to credit my mother a lot with encouraging other interactions with nature. I remember I was in, in uh, fourth grade and had my tonsils out. So I was a little old for, for uh, getting your tonsils out, but uh, I had to stay home from school, you know, and I had to, to heal. And she said, uh, you know, I saw, I saw garter snakes for sale at a store the other day. Would you like one? And I had never thought about snakes at all, but I said, that sounds like a good idea to me. So we went and got a garter snake and brought it home. And we knew nothing about snakes. So we said, well, what do they eat? We don't know. And then I said, I know there's, a, there's another pond. There's some polywogs in it. I'll get polywog. So we put it in the kitchen sink. We had no cage for the snake either. And I brought this huge polywog bag, bigger than the snake's head. And my mother said, there's no way he can eat that. And I put the polywog in the sink. Wham! He went for it right away. It took him about two hours to get it down. But so in that first, first two hours of owning a snake, I learned a lot about what snakes do. And then we, we built a cage. And I, I had snakes right through 
well, right through the early years of, of uh, my first marriage. <laughs> so it wasn't until much later that I discovered insects and, and fell in love with them. But, you know, I, if my mother hadn't done that, who knows what would have happened. And of course, she, she enjoyed it as well. If you were to ask someone, is nature important? They would surely say yes. Just how important is our relationship to nature? It's important that we're connected to nature because nature is what keeps us alive on this planet. A lot of people think that, you know, nature is nice, we can visit it, it's pretty, but we don't really need it. If, we, if it disappears, we can watch it on Channel 12 and, and it'll be okay. Um, that is so far from the truth, it's, it's actually a little scary. We need to have functioning ecosystems to keep our huge and burgeoning populations going. And every time we add somebody to the planet, we need more ecosystem services, not fewer. So nature is absolutely essential. We are part of it. We're products of nature. We can't exist in isolation of nature. We humans are connected to the welfare of the planet because we are products of the welfare of the planet. It is nature that created us. It's nature that we depend on. We cannot exist in isolation of nature. Even though it looks like we can, we go and we go to Manhattan, you look around, there's no nature there, and everybody seems happy. They're happy because they're getting their water from the Catskills, huge areas in upper New York State creating clean water. That's where they get their water. They're getting them food from all over the world. They're not getting what they need to live from Manhattan. Now, the Manhattan Island used to be a wonderful, productive ecosystem way back when. Now it's a series of buildings. Millions of people live there, but they can only live there if we keep the rest of the planet healthy. That's the critical message that we need to get across. We need to become better stewards of the land because the land supports us. Today's cultures all over the world really are almost totally disconnected from the natural world. We've created these artificial systems. People think that they get their food from the store, they get their water from the tap. Kids are spending enormous amounts of time looking at their phones, texting, Facebooking, all the things that they do, uh, it requires electricity. They're not doing that outside. So they are, they are very well informed electronically, connected electronically, but that has become a huge barrier between them and anything that's happening outside. If there are no plugs outside. You can't, you can't recharge. The thing that is interesting to them, the video games, all the things, it's, it's always presented electronically. So the inherent interest that I think kids are born with is, is eroded away with this new electronic world. How important is education in helping us to understand the issues we face and how we solve them? I've been teaching 36 years at the University of Delaware. I've seen a lot of classes come and go. And looking over that time span, I, I can say that the... Uh, the ecological IQ of incoming students uh, is getting lower and lower and lower uh, because they've grown up in a world where they've had no exposure to, uh, to nature. They've had very little opportunity to go out and teach themselves. We have not focused in our educational system, even at the, the higher level colleges, on what we call the taxonomies. You know, what is this plant? What is this insect? What is this, this snake? Because it doesn't generate grant money. So now we're turning out college students who know nothing about the animals they're supposedly studying. They don't know the natural history. 
And of course, that's what generates the interesting questions. There's no way we can save these species from, from local extinction or global extinction if we don't understand what they do, how they interact with other species, what they need to survive. Uh, so that is a, a, a huge problem. And scientists have been noting that since the 70s, saying we've got to teach the taxonomies better. But we're not doing it. There's a huge effort to reconnect children with nature. I would like to expand that, reconnect their parents as well. The only reason the children are disconnected is because the parents don't see the value in it. But a good place to do that is right at home. So the kids don't have to go on a field trip to experience something natural. They can just simply walk out outside. We need to do these things because, first of all, the kids are the future stewards of the planet. If they don't realize nature is important, if they don't realize stewardship of nature is important, they're going to be lousy stewards. Uh, so they're copying us. Right now, we are not, we're not very good stewards. We need to, to be better role models for them. But we need to teach them that their future depends on healthy ecosystems. They need to understand what healthy ecosystems are, are made of, what, what comprises them. I would love to have kids be able to look out their window at their, their house, look at their yard, and see what it's doing or what it's not doing. Is it supporting other species? Is it helping our pollinators? Is it sequestering carbon? And yes, they can learn what that means. Is it managing the watershed in a responsible way? When it pours rain, is all the water running off the lawn and clogging the sewers and wrecking our, our watersheds? These are things that uh, even young kids can look for and appreciate and say, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. And of course, the, par <laughs> the parents need to learn these things too, but they can do it as a family. There are some activities like the nation's efforts to save the monarch that have been great educational experiences, not just for the kids, but for, for their parents as well. The kids have learned that Monarch eats one thing, milkweeds. So that's a, that's a host specialization lesson right there. You're not going to save it without milkweeds. Where are the milkweeds? We've taken them away. It's green grass now instead of milkweeds. How do we save the Monarch? We put the milkweeds back. And where can we do that? Those are all, all lessons to be learned. Why does the Monarch need, need to, to go to flowers? Because it's migrating all the way to Mexico, you know, thousands of miles, and it needs, it needs forage on the way. Milkweeds aren't blooming in the fall when the monarchs are migrating, so they need asters and goldenrod and other things. Just to trying to save that one insect, we have to put a lot of the world back together again. And you can also tag them. You can go to, to Mexico and count the monarchs each year to see whether what we're doing is paying off. Um, so there's a, a huge educational value there. What I would like to stress to everybody is that the monarch is one species out of thousands and thousands and thousands of insects that are host plant specialists, just like the monarch. And nobody's, nobody's following them, but they're in the same, they have the same issues that the monarch does. In your book, Bringing Nature Home, you talk about the importance of why we must start to change the way we view our yards, our lawns, and our gardens. Uh, yeah, gardening, home gardening has, has been uh, an excellent way to uh, keep people connected to some aspects of, of nature. Uh, people are typically gardening with plants. They get to see how they grow, start from seeds, appreciate some of the roles that they do. We haven't been as good at uh, watching how plants interact with other species. Often if something comes to a plant, we got to kill it right away. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're growing food, that certainly makes sense. There's, there's competition there. We want the food for ourselves. Gardening with ornamental plants or simply watching what's happening in the trees around you is, is enormously rewarding. 
this is where knowledge generates uh, interest and, and power. If you understand what your plants are doing, you, you become a better gardener and you're much more interested in terms of what's going on. There's a reason to go outside because you might see something wonderful. The birds that are in your yard are there because there's food in your yard and the food that they're eating is insects and they're there because you have the right plants in your yard. If you have plants from Asia, there aren't any insects and you don't have the birds and people don't, don't understand those connections. So, you know, our relationship with gardening right now uh, is, is probably a little shaky. I think we can, we can solidify it by, by uh, better understanding of what those plants are actually doing. Um, gardens are wonderful learning opportunities, and I think our relationship with the garden is going to change as we learn more about it. In the past, we have viewed plants primarily as either food or decorations. And that's how we've treated our landscapes. We're gonna grow food in our, our vegetable garden, and then we're gonna decorate the rest of our property with, with plants. And we do that because plants are beautiful. They are wonderful decorations. But when we learn more about what those plants uh, actually need to be doing at home to create all those ecosystem services that keep us alive, then plant choice becomes important because all plants are not equal and their ability to function the way we need them to function. And typically, our most beautiful plants are from someplace else. They're from Asia, they're from Europe or South America, which means they have not been here long enough to develop the specialized relationships that are nature in this part of the world. Where, where they came from, they've got a lot of specialized relationships over there, but we bring them over here, then they become just decorations. That's not good enough anymore. We need functional plants. And let me just give you an example. Uh, in the mid-Atlantic states, oak trees support 557 species of caterpillars. You might say, well, I don't want any caterpillars in my yard, but actually you do. Each one of those caterpillars is bird food. So that's 557 species of bird food. Now you can compare that to a, a street tree from China called Zelkova, we planted all over the place. It supports zero caterpillars. So you put Zelkova in your yard, you have no, no bird food, no birds. You put the oaks in your yard, it's the best tree you can use. When people learn that, they're, they're eager. They say, I want to, I want to find the caterpillars. I want to feed the birds. So plant choice becomes really important, again, because plants are doing different things in different ways. There's a lot of talk today about supporting pollinators. And people, this is confusing to people because I talk about the power of native plants uh, all the time, and native plants are doing these things better than, than non-native plants in most cases. But people put a zinnia in their garden and they see the bumblebee come and they say, well, there are insects, this must be good. There are some, a few species of generalist bees, the bumblebees, we certainly have our honeybee from Europe, and they're going to these flowers, but it's just a few species. We have 4,000 species of native bees, many of which are specialists and only go to particular plant genera. So for example, in New England, there are 11 species of bees that will only go to uh, goldenrod. If you don't have goldenrod in your yard, you've missed 11 species of bees. If you don't have a native willow, you've, you've missed eight more species. If you don't have asters, you've missed seven more species. So that's 26 species that won't be in your yard if you don't have those three plants. So that's why plant choice is not just important in terms of making caterpillars for birds, it's very important in terms of supporting a diversity of the pollinators we need. And that's another, another thing I wanna mention. People think we need pollinators to pollinate our crops. And we do. A third of our crops are pollinated by, by animals. But we, we need pollinators primarily to pollinate other plants. 80% of the plants on this planet are pollinated by animals, mostly bees. And 90% of flowering plants are pollinated 
you know, by animals as opposed to the wind. If we lost our pollinators, we'd lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. Forget our food. We can't, uh, that's just simply not an option. So, you know, we're not, we're not talking about good land stewardship here. We're talking about essential land stewardship. And the reason it has to happen at home now, as opposed to in our gardens, as opposed to out in nature, is there's simply not enough nature left anymore. Uh, we talk about the human footprint on the planet. It's enormous these days. Our population continues to grow. We have about 7.5 billion people, and it's, it's headed up. That footprint is, again, it's destroying the ecosystems that support us. So we need to learn to live within productive ecosystems. Let's describe the, the footprint a little bit. Most people have lawns, and most people have a lot of their property in lawn. We now have 45.6 million acres of lawn in the US, which is the size of New England in just plain lawn. So how many of the things that we need to happen at home are happening in our lawn? The carbon sequestration, supporting the pollinators, helping the food webs, managing our watersheds, none of them, none of them on the lawn. So I don't suggest we get rid of lawn, I just say we should, we should shrink it a little bit, like at least half, and turn the rest of, of that land into productive plant communities that help our properties add to local ecosystem function instead of destroying it. That's a brand new way of looking at the, the land that we own. But, but it is essential. Um, if people consider these facts to be alarmist, that's because they are alarming. Uh, we, you know, these are serious numbers here. We humans are over the carrying capacity of the planet. That means that in the long run, we cannot sustain the populations we have living the lifestyles that we live. So the only way to uh, fix that is to raise the carrying capacity of the planet. I mean, we could say, well, we're gonna consume less, we'll have fewer people and everything else. That requires sacrifice on everybody's part. It's a very hard message to get across. But if we put the plants back that determine what the carrying capacity is, uh, we can actually raise it. We can increase the Earth's ability to uh, support us. And, and I say that is what we ought to be doing. So I don't wanna talk about creating gardens that aren't beautiful. I just wanna combine beauty with function instead of simply uh, building gardens based on aesthetics. And we can do that. It's all about plant choice. I do not accept that there are no plants from North America that are beautiful. Yes, we got beautiful plants from Asia, uh, but we have beautiful plants from here too. And we can use some of the plants from Asia, but right now I go out and I measure landscapes. About 80% of the plants we plant in our, our managed landscapes are, are uh, ornamentals from someplace else. Let's balance that a little bit. Let's get those high functioning plants into the landscape. We, we absolutely have to do that. Um, a lot of people think that our native plants are wild and messy. There's no way they can be used formally. But if you go to Europe, our native plants from North America are used in formal gardens all of the time. And I guess it's okay over there because they're non-native plants over there. Formality is a function of the design. It's not a function of the plants in that design. So we certainly can use our, our native plants in formal designs if that's the aesthetic that's attractive to you. Lastly, do you think maybe it's too late? Or can all of us start to make a real difference? I would say up till now, we've been bullies. We've simply, we wanted to beat it back, control it so that we could do whatever we wanted to do. 
That has worked for a long time because there was a lot of nature left out there. But uh, I think we've gone too far. And, and now we've got to renegotiate our relationship with, with nature. Nature is essential. Uh, so the way we've treated it in the past, it's not working. It's not working. So renegotiating a, a healthy interaction with nature, healthy relationship is, is essential. And I, I think that's, that's the process we're, we're deep into right now. We can learn to live with nature, the nature that we need to support us. But we, again, the planet's not growing. We cannot grow forever. Can we as humans learn to renegotiate a, a, a relationship with nature? Sure, of course we can. We can do that. A lot of people wonder whether they can actually make a difference in this. And, and what I want to emphasize is that, yes, you can. Even if you have very small piece of property, very small piece of the world, by making that a productive piece of the world, you become part of this larger puzzle of conservation pieces. It's all coming together. So your role in conservation is much more important than most people give, give uh, themselves credit for. So view, I would say anybody who owns a piece of property, or even if you live in an apartment complex, you're on a piece of land, you can influence the way that land is treated. Those areas are now essential to the conservation of life on Earth. I try to convince the audiences I talk to that they really can have an extremely important role in conservation. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview from the filming of Negotiating with Nature and that you get a chance to read all of Doug Tommy's books. They are so important. And I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues, and subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden. N-O-O-R-D-E-N productions.com If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us through our website contact page and we will share them on our Instagram page. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime... Remember, we are nature.